How can Opportunity Zones ignite a place-based economic development revolution in one of the nation's poorest states? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Opportunity Alabama, or OPAL for short, is the first example of a statewide nonprofit organization that has created a marketplace specifically for Opportunity Zone investment. Joining me on the program today is OPAL's founder and CEO, Alex Floxbart. Alex joins us from the road in Baldwin County, Alabama. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Great to be here. Great to have you, Alex. I've uh, been following you from a distance for, for some time, and I think you've done the same uh, with, with what I'm doing. So it's, it's good to get you on the phone and really looking forward to it. I was going to say, with, with, all the, with all the mileage I've been putting on my car over the course of the last uh, year or so, it, it's been good to have a stable podcast that I can listen to as I'm driving around the state. So thank you for, thank you for being the fuel that keeps us going. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad I can help out in any small way I can. Uh, so let's, let's dive in. Tell us a little bit um, about what you're up to. Maybe you can tell us first a little bit about Alabama, and specifically the capital gap that exists in Alabama, and what you feel like the Opportunity Zones program and OPAL can do for the state. Sure. We, you know, over the course of the last year or so since we set up this organization, uh, one of the key factors for us has been actually trying to identify what need looks like within Opportunity Zone communities, both from a you know, what as a community, what are the big asset classes where we need to see growth? Is it, um, you know, commercial, industrial, residential, affordable housing, uh, child care facilities, senior care? I mean, what, you know, so, sort of what are the asset classes we need? And then, um, you know, what's, what's current, you know, what's, what sort of in budget, what's in scope uh, for a lot of these places? And, uh, you know, we're working, I would say we've soft penciled probably north of 200 potential things that could happen across the state of Alabama um, just in the last, you know, probably six months of really beating the bushes around this. Um, I mean, if, if, if you're, and if you want to put dollar values to it, I mean, you're talking about, you know, well over a billion dollars worth of just projects that are actually ready to go where we've identified a capital gap, um, let alone the projects where it's an idea, uh, it's something that the community needs, but there isn't yet a hard pro forma and hard numbers around the project. So, I mean, the scope of what this program could do for low-income places and for the people who live in them uh, within the right structure is just, it's, it's insane, it's remarkable. Uh, but again, it's only within the right structure and only with the right approach that we're ever going to see uh, any kind of a realization of, of, of a closing of that gap. Good. I'll ask you a little bit more about what Opal's doing specifically to help close that gap in a minute, but I want to back up for a minute and learn a little bit more about you, Alex, a little bit more about your background. How did you get into this, first of all? What, what compelled you to set up Opportunity Alabama? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, as with all uh, good things in life, uh, this happened completely by accident, by backing through open doors. Uh, so I, you know, I was an attorney uh, here in Birmingham, um, although uh, I, I, I will say I've kind of always had a real interest and a passion for uh, doing uh, cool 
uh, transformative, uh, specifically like economic development, community development oriented things in, in low income places. Um, you know, did, did, did teach America before going to law school, um, spent as much time as I possibly could in rural parts of Alabama, um, thinking about, you know, interesting and creative ways, uh, through my lens as a lawyer in Birmingham to bring new capital to projects, uh, across the state, uh, whether that was the, you know, 100,000, uh, you know, new job giant, uh, you know, project up in North Alabama or, uh, you know, uh, thinking about how we can revitalize downtown Selma, um, sort of across the board. That was a, a part of what I did as an attorney, uh, working in the economic development sort of practice area that we had at our firm. Um, but as a part of that job, one of my sort of standing obligations was be the nerd who actually reads the, the tax bill uh, and, and all the new potential incentive programs that come out so we can figure out which of these cool new things we can use to go do more interesting projects uh, and create value for, uh, for, for, for people in Alabama. So, uh, I, you know, it was control finding literally through the tax bill uh, for, the, for the phrase low income and just stumbled across this because I was worried that the Senate version had just like the House version of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, acts the new markets program, uh, and stumbled across this and thought, wow, this is really cool and good gracious. If this thing happens and gets put in the final version, I mean, it's going to, you know, it's, it, it is going to be a, a thousand times what the next closest program could be in terms of scope. Uh, because it's so open-ended by, by, by very definition. Uh, and so sort of at the back of my mind, there was this thought around, you know, we in Alabama have always had this sort of chronic underfunding of our low-income places. Uh, we, we haven't been first to market on taking advantage of CDFIs or programs sponsored by the CDFI fund or new markets tax credits. We, we've, those are all sort of very historically underutilized programs here. Uh, and so thanks to this new incentive uh, that was raw text at the time, uh, I, I think we sort of immediately saw that if because it's so because of its open-ended nature, you could, if you had the right infrastructure in place, rally groups to a conversation around this new incentive that could ultimately help to close that access to capital gap for our low-income places. Uh, and that was kind of where the idea for Opportunity Alabama was born. It was, it was quite literally like, you know, here's this thing in the tax cut, uh, tax cuts and jobs act that, you know, if we build an infrastructure around it, we can really get the the four stakeholder groups at the table that we need to do uh, to, to create an, an economic development engine for our low income places that we've needed for a very long time. Oh, that's great. So you latched onto this concept pretty early on. If you were searching through the, uh, the, the, some of the initial versions of the tax bill before it was passed. That's, that's good for you, kind of hitting the ground running when, you, when, you, when it was passed, I suppose. And, and you're absolutely right. It is very open-ended, the program, and that's part of what makes it so powerful. And um, for better or worse, you know, that opens it to potentially some abuse, uh, but can also do a lot of good things that, uh, that we're hopeful that it ends up doing and, and that a lot of these projects end up following congressional intent. So... You know, with that in mind, what are the keys, would you say, to creating positive outcomes in opportunity zones, not just in Alabama, but, but nationwide? Yeah, I, so it's a fantastic question. I think one that we all, given the nature of the incentive, it's exactly as you said, we need to, we need to all actively be wrestling with all of us who are thinking about this, this, this new incentive. 
um, that is not, as, as other guests on your show have said previously, a program, right? Like it's an incentive. Um, and so I think the easy answer is you've got to have intentionality from a, from a third-party perspective, whether that's a nonprofit like ours, whether that's city and local government, whether that's a foundation actor, or heck, even if it's just a, you know, an investor group, um, as we've seen with the sort of the rise of the impact fund in this space over the last six, seven months. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, you've got to have someone who's bringing that sort of perspective of how do we, how, how can we at a systematic level measure and assess, A, what a community needs, and then B, what, uh, what, what are the projects that are getting done or that are getting worked on are actually responding to those expressed needs uh, from, from communities across the state. And so, uh, and again, it's just, it's all, it's just intentionality. Uh, it's, it's having boots on the ground to think creatively about how to use a completely open-ended tool to rally groups to the table who can actually help you achieve the outcomes you want to achieve. And I think that, so, so it all, at the end of the day, comes back to if this tool weren't open-ended in the way that it is, if it was just an application process where we had to send in our projects all to some central federal clearinghouse, we, you wouldn't be able to get community-oriented investors to the table. You wouldn't be able to get hometown heroes really excited about this. You wouldn't be able to get local elected officials or neighborhood association presidents or local bankers all talking to each other around the table, which is what we're doing across the state of Alabama now. Um, and you know, uh, because each of those stakeholder groups has some role to play in this ecosystem if they are informed of what that role is and then invited to the table to collaborate with each other, then uh, to me at least, as long as you're shepherding that conversation in the right direction, then po positive outcomes are far, far, far more likely to be achieved. So it's just intentionality in creating that ecosystem in your local, in, in your backyard. Having boots on the ground, getting in touch with the local community leaders and the local residents. Yeah, I think that's that's key. That's a that's a theme that's kind of popped up on a few different episodes of, of the podcast. I'll admit I'm guilty of calling it the Opportunity Zones program myself uh, pretty frequently. I, I should start referring to it more as op the Opportunity Zone incentive. I kind of like that that term better. You're right. I think that's a that's a better term there. Uh, I want to want to speak to a specific segment of our audience listening right now. I know we have a lot of real estate developers listening. We have a lot of business owners listening who are looking for Opportunity Zone capital. In, in your experience, what are some best practices for them for, for going about raising Opportunity Zone capital, uh, not just for Alabama, but, but again, across the country? Yeah, no, and I, I think what's so interesting about that question is that like the way that one can approach capital all depends on how connected you are to it and whether you have intermediaries in place on the ground where you are that can be helpful to you in connecting to capital, right? Uh, and I think that's part of what should counsel any, any of your listeners who are thinking about how to, you know, who, who are real estate developers um, or, uh, you know, who, who have projects and who are thinking about how do I go find the funds um, and who haven't been super engaged with local foundations or with, the city or with the county or with kind of other more public sector actors. Well, at the end of the day, you know, think about you as a repeat actor in this, in, in, in a broader ecosystem, right? Uh, if, if you can be a part of helping to stand up capacity within a foundation or within a new C3 or, um, you know, within city government or, or wherever it makes sense in your backyard to kind of have that, 
that deal jockey, that, that matchmaker who can be constantly out there looking for potential investment dollars for, for, for your community, then that relieves the burden on you to have to troll through every single, you know, fund listed on the Novogratic side, the NCHSA side, um, and it shifts the burden to someone else. So, like, that's obviously here in Alabama, it's as simple as any developer who wants to figure out, you know, anything about what people are funding or what they're not funding in the OZ space, what funds are cutting checks, how big those checks are, what kinds of return profiles they're looking for, who's serious about urban in Alabama, who's serious about rural. I mean, it's literally one phone call to us, right? Um, but for, for other places, it's a lot tougher. It is a lot more like work. Um, and I'd say, like, you know, it's, it's going to it's, – it's figuring out the guests that are on this show uh, and listening to them. It's going to the National Trade Show Association. It's going to – Novogratic and Ozzy Expo and, uh, you know, and, and the other events that get put out there. Cause I mean, that's, you know, and, and working through LinkedIn. I mean, like those are the best ways at this point that we've seen because they're, because it's, because it is so decentralized uh, unless you have that kind of an intermediary. So I, I guess I would just encourage any of your listeners who, who sort of have remained reluctant to get engaged with the sort of the community reporting side, the community engagement side, like that it actually, in the end, even if you're, um, you know, like a, a, a shameful, ruthless capitalist, you know, as like the pejorative term is used at heart, which I don't believe in. But like at the end of the day, you know, no matter what your perspective is at the table, uh, there is extreme value in, in, in having someone who can kind of be that dedicated intermediary between uh, projects and, and, and investors. Well, I think that's, that's great advice. That's, that's excellent advice, Alex. Thank you for that. Uh, getting back to, to Alabama now and what uh, what the data that you're collecting on Opal specifically on Opportunity Alabama what does uh, what does the pipeline look like there what types of projects are you seeing mostly and and where are they located so across the board Jimmy uh, we've got everything so uh, like I, I, mean, I mentioned this earlier in passing but we've got uh, I would say you know probably 200 plus things that were just sort of tracking as potential opportunities um, I would say about 30-ish of them are shovel-ready enough that we feel good putting them in front of national our national fund partners. Um, and that's real estate. It's pre, uh, until about two months ago, that was almost exclusively real estate. Uh, I think we're really starting to see sort of that, the, 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 the operating company wave start to crest coming out of the April guidance. I think like the message, thanks to pounding the pavement like we've been doing here for the last few months, is finally starting to sort of seep into the active business community that like this is this is now this is now a tool for you to use to, and that we have a clear enough path to feel good about potential investment. Um, and honestly, that the, the the big difference, at least for us, is that we had actually been telling um, operating companies, or we hadn't really been actively trying to get them into our pipeline because we hadn't seen um, sort of national fund interest, uh, to, you know, up until a couple months ago in operating companies either. It, you know, even at the national level, really mostly real estate oriented funds. But in, in the last month or two, we've seen, I mean, we've got to inbound probably a half dozen or more requests from operating company only funds um, that are looking specifically at OZ businesses. That's been, that's, that's been interesting and heartening to see. Um, percentage wise, I'd still say probably, you know, 80 to 90% of our pipeline is still real estate. And then probably the other 10 to 20% is operating companies. Um, and those range everywhere from, 
you know, the, the $500,000 to million dollar projects uh, that are looking for like 200, 300 grand in equity, um, all the way up to the, you know, 150 to $250 million projects, even the, you know, sort of five phase, you know, 500, 600 million dollar projects in a couple different places um, that obviously are going to get achieved over a, a, a you know, a, a series of, of years, not months. Um, so, so it's, it's sort of, it's across the board. Um, but what, you know, what we've kind of done is tried to segment pipeline into buckets that we think are going to be most appealing to the different asset classes of fund manager that we see out there. So um, I'd say, you know, we've, for our, uh, you know, for our urban projects, and I'd say most of the dollar value of our pipeline is used towards urban because we're seeing just, again, it's just possible to have larger projects in Birmingham and Huntsville and places, you know, Tuscaloosa, Mobile, uh, Montgomery, places like that. Uh, and so in those places, you know, where, again, you can, you can also typically see slightly, uh, you know, slightly lower reasonable cap rates, uh, slightly higher, uh, you know, justifiable preferred returns. And so, you know, you can easily squeeze mid-team uh, IRR projects uh, out, of, out in those places. Um, when it gets to rural projects where, you know, we've got a preponderance, probably, you know, 30, 40% of our pipelines probably in places that are not sort of Birmingham and Huntsville. Um, but at the end of the day, those are the projects where, because they're just smaller dollar value, um, it's just harder to do a giant project in a rural area, um, and certainly a lot riskier if you are doing a giant project in a rural area. I would say that's where we probably had the hardest time to date, making connections consistently with national capital, and where like we've been most focused on trying to find local investors to, to, to bite off those chunks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that's smart of you to, to segment it the way that you are by asset class and location. What? T- talk to me more about the engagement that you're seeing from national funds. What is that looking like? Yeah. So it's been really, it's been great to see. So you know, we, we've sort of heretofore um, been talking to a lot of folks that were really interested. I mean, I, again, you know, larger national folks that were interested in sort of larger dollar value projects in places like Birmingham and Huntsville, which is great. Uh, and there's an incredible need in those places, just like there is across Alabama. Um, and again, our entire pipeline, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, to give you some tangible examples, you can wrap your head around it, you know, a, a $40 million, you know, mixed use development, uh, or a $120 million mixed use project, uh, in, in a place like a downtown Birmingham, all the way down to a $12 million senior care facility in a place in a rural place like Heflin, right? Um, and so, um, on the national fund side, I think we've seen, you know, definitely some interest, um, you know, Projects moving through diligence processes in Huntsville and Birmingham hadn't really seen that for rural or for I would say disenfranchised portions of urban. But what we're starting to see more of are you know larger national impact funds, people like our Terrace, for example, um, that are really excited about not just stuff that's happening in rural places, but sort of alternative asset classes. Um, and what I mean by that, you know, thinking about broadband, thinking about solar, thinking about um, even municipal sale leaseback, stuff like that, uh, where, you know, we, 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 we've been very excited about having partners who want to sort of think outside the box, want to be outside of just sort of core major urban areas um, and, and, you know, be doing kind of cool things on the real estate side uh, that, that, you know, where there's extreme sort of community need. So, We've been we've been actively trying to tee up more projects that, that fit that mold uh, as we've been going around the state. So 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out, but we've been excited to see that. Um, and then on the local side too, I mean, I, th- I think we've seen tremendous interest from local investors in this. So then though, it's really been a question of having a consistent vehicle that they can use to make investments um, and to feel good about the investments they're making. So, um, and, and that's still an open question, I would say, uh, that it's, it's harder to find, it's harder to aggregate and then control local capital than it is to just go call an opportunity fund that can put your project through a diligence process and then cut you a check. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, you mentioned Dark Terrace, and that, that, that reminded me of something that you, uh, that you, that you said a, a few minutes ago. I, I wanted to follow up with you on. You, you mentioned that there's been a rise of, of impact funds um, over the last several months here. What, what did you mean by that? What are you seeing? What's that trend look like? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's like the, the, the most heartening thing that we've seen in the opportunity zone since we got started, honestly. Uh, you know, uh, like even just today, had a wonderful conversation with a fund that I didn't know existed before two days ago that looking to cut, you know, million to $3 million checks uh, to, to primarily rural projects, which is great. Um, and thinking about it from an impact orientation. So I think that like, you know, whereas before there had really only been one or two people that we'd kind of soft penciled as impact oriented folks, I mean, we're probably working with, shoot, I would say more than 10 sort of national or regional yeah, you know, specific dedicated have already raised capital and are looking to deploy at funds that are thinking about again those places that are not that are not core downtown um, downtown areas, or that if they're looking at core downtown areas, are looking at projects that are childcare facilities in those places, or that are uh, you know charter schools, or that are you know unique asset classes uh, in those spaces. So, I mean, and I think I don't exactly know what to put my finger on other than the incredible work that people like the Beck Center and the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance and, and Sorensen have done to really kind of beat the drum on this and to flush a lot of these people who are sort of thinking about uh, investing in real estate as an impact play out of the woodwork. Um, and it really is. It's, it's creating a whole new language for people who really had never thought about real estate-oriented investing as anything other than real estate oriented investing. I never really thought about this, this weird confluence of, of impact and real estate before. Um, and I think that the beauty of sort of what, you know, the, the impact investing framework and what, uh, you know, back in, and, you know, and USIAA and, uh, you know, the Fed and, and others have worked on is it like it's given a language for people who sort of share our value set to express how they want to engage with, with, with groups like ours and with project sponsors, which I think even it, that alone has been incredibly helpful. Yeah, I agree. I, I've heard anecdotally from a few fund managers and, and real estate developers that, that they had never really heard of impact investing until the Opportunity Zone program came along. I think just that that concept of, of impact investing has kind of broadened its reach to market rate investors who may not have otherwise been quote unquote impact investors before, maybe they're considering it more now. Right. I want to talk about I want to talk about what's uh what's happening in your neck of the woods specifically in Alabama, in in Birmingham, in the big city there in Alabama. What it it's been held up as a as a model for opportunity zone municipal involvement, uh kind of in the same realm as Erie, Pennsylvania, who I had on the podcast a week or two ago, and uh, Louisville, Kentucky comes to mind. South Bend, Indiana comes to mind. Uh, Birmingham's right up there with with them in terms of a model for municipal involvement with Opportunity Zone development. What are they doing right in Birmingham, and and what are they doing that other municipalities should emulate? So, 
I mean, A, Birmingham has been had a, had a finger to the pulse on OZs from day one for a lot of the same reasons that we at Opportunity Alabama and kind of the, the, the initial philanthropic sponsor of Opportunity Alabama got excited about that concept, which is that, again, you know, Birmingham's got 99 neighborhoods. 77 of them have Opportunity Zones. Um, and that was very intentional. That was because the city got engaged from day one with the governor's office and said, look, like we, we, we need zones not just in places where, you know, we, we can make a strong case for investment, but also in places where, you know, we, we want to create over the next decade a strong case for investment. Uh, and, and, and they were successful in that. Um, so, I mean, again, you know, almost 80 percent of Birmingham has at least some kind of opportunity zone in it, uh, or at least touching a neighborhood. So. So they had, they've almost had to be very proactive about this because so much of the city is in OZs. Um, they, they have appointed an OZ czar internally. Uh, his name is Melanie Dinkin, uh, who does nothing but wake up every day and think about how to find new projects, how to get local folks engaged. So, I mean, specific avenues that have come out of that that I think are easily replicable by, by other cities. Um, obviously, one, you know, having a centralized OZ point person is incredibly helpful, makes my job as a sort of a backbone supporter to the city of Birmingham and also the other places across the state that we're supporting. I, I can, I, I can, I have such an easier time facilitating, um, you know, cool things happening in Birmingham because I have that point person because there's an easy point of contact and it, it just makes everything about OZ organizing so much easier Two, Birmingham has been very intentional about trying to engage residents uh, in the OZ process. And I think that makes it very unique nationally because they've, convened a, a board called the Community Investment Board. It's comprised of citizens uh, who, whose whole job it is uh, to work with their fellow residents of Opportunity Zones to identify potential OZ projects. Um, they've twinned this with sort of two aligned strategies, one being education, because it's really hard to identify OZ projects if you don't have a clue, like sort of what the OZ program is or what it does and what it doesn't do, more importantly. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're on the path now towards educating 500 local folks about uh, what this program is and is not and how it dovetails with other local incentives, with other small business development, um, real estate investing programs um, so that, you know, people who come to one of these three-hour sessions can, can get sort of a pretty comprehensive education on tool sets that are available to them. Um, second sort of aligned program is, uh, is actual direct-to-community surveying. The city's working with this group called Public Democracy, which is just an incredible thought partner um, and, you know, strong recommend for anyone who's thinking about sort of community engagement in this space to reach out to them because they're actually working to survey local area residents on what their, you know, uniquely expressed preferences are and, and what their needs are. So, you know, I mean, to, to give you an example, we've been thinking that grocery stores uh, were going to be the number one issue area for residents of, of Opportunity Zones. And... You know, while obviously that's an incredible need, what we found with the actual data was that while grocery stores are important, childcare facilities are actually by far and away the most important thing to people who live in low-income places and having better access to quality, affordable childcare uh, near near their house. And so now, like we're having this whole new kind of pivoted conversation around, yeah, we have to deliver grocery and affordable housing, but where does childcare fit into this, and how do we make that childcare a part of every OZ project that we work on? Uh, so that's been kind of a cool thing to see. And, and and the final thing that they've done is actually stand up a group of, you know, kind of called hometown heroes, uh, local local high net worth individuals, um, sort of, you know, uh, prodigal sons that have moved away and are in places like New York and Chicago who care about Birmingham and want to see it grow. 
uh, and they've marshaled this group called the Investment Advisory Board. That sort of is the, the, the mirror image of the community, the, sort of the community board, but whose job it is to actually try to identify capital for the projects that have been identified and are actually investable. Um, so that 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 part of it is sort of the last. Obviously, you know, you need to kind of scaffold up to that. So uh, that's the last piece that, that they're hoping to implement uh, sometime this fall. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say in terms of architecture range, maybe scope of what Birmingham is trying to do, and then overall commitment to using OZs as a tool to fund not only real estate, you know, and, and placemaking, but but also to fund sort of the incredible startup culture that Birmingham has, and to use OZs as a lever to you know, actually make Birmingham one of the places, aside from, you know, uh, uh, the, the Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, and Austin, uh, that actually get, you know, uh, real third-party uh, looks from, from venture capital because of the quality of the operating companies that we're trying to attract to downtown. So uh, the, all of, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot, but, uh, but I'd say if it's, it's, it certainly sort of sets the bar for what you should be thinking about as a community. It is a lot. There's a, there's a lot to do to to pull all of this together, I suppose. But uh, I think it 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 starts with that OZ SAR. If if every city had one of those, maybe that would that would go a long way, if nothing else. But yeah, obviously a lot of other components need to come together as well. Uh, so you're you're in your car right now. You're on you're on the road. You're on your way back to Birmingham from a, uh, a community event that you spoke at. Uh, can you talk to me more about? these events that you've done throughout the state, how many of them have you done so far? And uh, which stakeholders are you, are you getting together and, and are these meant to be educational or more transactional or a little bit of both? Yeah, a little bit of both. And it sort of depends on where the community is and its life cycle is where the focus is um, and, and sort of how many of these we've done in a place too. Um, so, so I, I would say, you know, at a base level, it's, Every one of these events engages for the sort of the four core stakeholder groups that comprise the Opportunity Zones ecosystem that I referenced earlier. Uh, and, and those are, I mean, just so we're clear, one, communities, so local elected officials, economic developers, chamber folks, others who kind of have a community's best interest in mind. Uh, two, project sponsors, uh, the, the folks you referenced earlier, the real estate developers, the landowners, the entrepreneurs, the business owners, others who could have potentially investable assets. Um, third are actual investors or people who can get to investors, uh, right? So uh, whether those are financial advisors, the uh, high net worth individuals themselves, or just even their accountants, uh, but having them all in a room. Uh, and then fourth, uh, third-party supporters that we actually think of as kind of the, the, the bedrock of a stable OZ ecosystem going forward. And these are folks that they might not have capital gains. Uh, they might not have projects necessarily, you know, kind of like, immediately for investment, but they're the people that can sustain the ecosystem going forward and, and fund the, the human capital needed to make this thing work. So that's banks um, to do the debt piece. It's uh, community foundations to provide support. It's utilities who can be super helpful in this space. Uh, it's, it's lawyers. Uh, it's colleges and universities who have a lot of capacity if, if given the right engagement structure to actually help with all kinds of different angles on, on building out an OZ ecosystem. So um, those are the kind of the core stakeholder groups that, that, we, see, uh, that we like to see around the table. And sometimes, depending on the community, it, it's, it's two meetings or it's three meetings um, more so than it is one. 
Uh, but particularly when we go to smaller places, uh, it's, it's kind of fun actually to see all those groups all around the table, all talking to each other because it, it really doesn't happen very often that sort of you have one thing that all, that, that, that sort of very disparate group of people can all talk about together all, you know, it, and again, if, if given a common framework for thinking about this, all in a way that kind of helps them to pull their oars in the same direction, uh, which particularly in a smaller rural place is just so critically important. Um, so, so that's the, that's sort of the broader ecosystem. Those are the people we have in the room, and then what we do with them once they're there. Uh, obviously, you know, on, on first touch, it's education, right? So, if the first time we've been to a community, then yes, like the, the number one thing that we do for an hour is spend time figuring out what the OZ program is, figuring out what it's not, and then really going around the room and figuring out sort of what people's roles are in building this ecosystem out, right? So as a project sponsor, where do you go to say that you've got a project ready to go? Uh, is it the local chamber? Is it us at Opportunity Alabama? Is it the locals are? I mean, who is it? As an investor, uh, where can you start? Who do you need to reach out to? As a, as a bank, uh, where do you find the projects? How can you get CRA for this? As a university, what departments need to be engaged in this? Can your marketing folks help build out a prospectus? Can your uh, real estate department actually help to underwrite some of these projects, right? So it's it's giving people sort of assigned roles around the table. And then obviously second visit, third visit to a place, it's it's how's it going? Um, are, are, are we finding projects? Um, are we uh, are, are we actually getting stuff teed up? And then hopefully, in, you know, in some places that are far enough along, it's okay, let's put the investors in a room. Because uh, sometimes they don't want to be there for the first meeting or two. And sometimes, you know, it helps to actually kind of build out the, 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 the project base, build out the pipeline, and, and then put them in a room and say, all right, guys, you know, here's the marketing materials on the project. Here's why our community is awesome now. Here's why we're more awesome 10 years down the road. Uh, you know, kind of what do you guys think? So, uh, so, that's been, so that's been fun to see. Um, and, 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 again, it, it, it all comes back at the end of the day to capacity building. Um, and if, if all we do thanks to this program is rally rooms full of people together and sort of like get them all talking to each other about what community development looks like and how, you know, again, particularly as a rural place or as a disenfranchised urban place, how you can build out a strategy for identifying why you're awesome now, but more importantly, why you will be a lot more awesome 10 years down the road. If that is all that comes of this, honestly, that's, that's not that bad of an outcome. Uh, if, if, if across the state we've got people, all of whom can actually execute on a plan for making a community better, all talking to each other around the table about how to make how, how to make that plan happen. Yeah, that would be a huge success. If uh, even if nothing else happens, um, I suspect you'll have more success than that. Even. Well, yeah, and, and I was going to say, just to be clear, so your listeners don't think I'm trying to cop out or something. We've already gotten, <laughs> we've already had our first, you know, probably, oh, gosh seven, eight uh, projects that we've touched, uh, get done, get closed, get under construction, you know, get started. So like, we're already starting to see the fruits of this strategy pay off. Um, and I think that, you know, we're only going to see more projects get done across the state in, in the coming months. It's just, it's just, you know, I, I think that the thing that gets lost so often in the national conversation around this incentive is that those kinds of local conversations, those really like interesting thought provoking, you know, where do we go five years from now, 10 years from now to make this community a better place? How do we rethink the intersection of community and economic development? All of these conversations are happening because of this new incentive. And like, it just never gets talked about in the national media, it never gets reported on. Uh, and it's just such an incredible outcome of this. That I don't even, 
I, I think maybe that's what John uh, Letary and, and, and Glickman and the rest of the gang intended when they created this, but it's, it's certainly been one of the coolest byproducts that we've seen. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It, it sounds like it was much needed, and um, I'm glad to hear from from people like you and some some other guests that I've had on uh, relay these anecdotes about how this is getting people together at those at those levels like uh, that that wouldn't have gotten together otherwise. Uh, especially that that fourth group you mentioned that gets overlooked from from time to time: the banks and the philanthropic organizations, the community foundations. I think those are those are essential as as we we've discussed previously. Uh, I, I want our listeners to get a sense of just how much mileage you're logging, Alex. So can you, can you tell us how many of these events around the state you you've hosted over the last uh, year or so? Uh, north of north of 75. Um, so yeah, I actually, you, you're right for, for, for tax purposes of nothing else. I need to retelling my mileage. I haven't done it in a while. I know it's, it, it's, it, it's at least, it's at least, 60,000 miles I've put on my car since I started this. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it, it really has. Well, well, yeah, no good, good, good for you getting out there and, uh, actually hitting the street and, and getting these local stakeholders engaged together. I think that's incredible what you're doing. Um, so you mentioned that you've, you've already closed on your first, I think you said seven or eight projects. I know it's really early still. Um, this, this, incentive is just getting underway um in 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 many respects but but what has the opportunity zone incentive done for alabama already um i think we've we've talked a little bit about at least it's getting these stakeholders to the to the table but do you have any other anecdotes to share or any other success stories yeah so a, a couple thoughts here actually um one uh you know obviously projects right like you know the the, the i alluded to earlier but like the the 12 million dollar senior care facility in half alabama the new stock of, of uh, build a suit industrial that we've got down in uh, Opelika, the uh, new, you know, sort of uh, right above sort of at workforce level housing that we've got in Baldwin County, the, um, the, the, the new affordable housing we've got in Birmingham. I mean, it's all over the state, you're already seeing deals get done that are creating cool, wonderful community-oriented outcomes, right? Um, and there's a great for anyone who's interested. There's there's an article on our state media outlet al.com about uh, you know kind of Alabama's billion dollar Alabama's billion dollar opportunity that kind of talks about our pipeline and it kind of goes through all those projects. Uh, so 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 that's that's one whole piece of I think benefit and that will only continue. And then, and then obviously there's the community planning, the kind of community visioning, community conversations that are coming out of this that we just talked about. Um, but but the third piece that I didn't necessarily expect. But it's been really interesting to see has been um, th- this last legislative session. We actually uh, we we put together a a incentive that was designed to sort of fill a gap that we saw in the OZ marketplace, which which was again back to the conversation we had earlier. At the time, we, we really weren't seeing a whole lot of even impact oriented funds get really excited about sort of you know kind of core rural or you know, projects that were in really sort of distressed urban areas where you're doing a whole lot of blight remediation, where you're, uh, you know, taking a chance on, on, on projects. And so we, we advocated for the passage of some legislation that would essentially do what the Kresge Rockefeller guarantee did for Arcturus and for CCM. And that is offer $50 million worth of first loss protection 
to impact-oriented opportunity funds that are um, that, that are actually investable, um, that, that are that have a really quality vetted pipeline of potential OZ projects. Um, and I mean, this is pretty this is pretty radical medicine uh, for for a state like for a for a pretty conservative red state like Alabama. Um, I mean, this is this is certainly the most you know sort of progressive, most uh, you know again you know kind of impact oriented. There's there's you know, impact tracking language in the in the incentive itself. Uh, there's even you know uh, again kind of in, in the application form that we proposed uh, for for implementing this. Uh, it tracks exactly back to the uh, the impact and you know investing alliances uh, to the OZ framework, right? So like again, very very sort of progressive. Very uh, you know, it's a big incentive, uh, but it passed both houses of the legislature almost unanimously. Um, and and I think it's because like you know, it, this is not a this is not a political. Like at the end of the day, trying to make quality projects happen in rural places, in underserved urban places, in disinvested places where you've got a preponderance of of low to moderate income people, creating better outcomes for them is not a it's not a partisan issue. It's just not. Uh, and 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 you know, it doesn't matter if you're the bluest state or the reddest state that. You know, if, if if there is a quality community facing program that really can move the needle, that that you know, <laughs> that that it's a that it, it can become a no brainer as as policy, especially if that policy can ultimately actually produce revenue positive for the people that are creating it. So, um, so that that's been an interesting takeaway, I, I would say, from all of this. And by the way, that incentive has now totally changed the way that I can have conversations with funds about you know the portfolio they're looking at in Alabama. Now instead of just single one off, here's this project. Now it's you know, hey, look, you you come here and you know you put together a portfolio of five or six investments. Maybe we can actually get them guaranteed, uh, so that your investors aren't losing money. So it's uh, that I would say those three things. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful incentive. There's a that's a nice byproduct of uh, of of this incentive, that additional legislation there. Yeah, that that sounds pretty incredible. Uh, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you faced uh, with? with opportunity zones and with, with opportunities and development specifically in Alabama? Oh man. Uh, a lot of the ones we've talked about, right. It's, it's, it's thinking about, um, rural, uh, thinking about, um, how we can bundle packages, uh, how, how we can bundle projects. Um, it's, it's, it's thinking about, um, you know, how we, how we scale the, uh, our, our, our sort of collective statewide effort to identify and then elevate, get shovel-ready uh, projects that a community really needs. Like, for example, if there's extreme need for workforce housing, uh, how do we get a developer in place that can build the pro forma? How do we get that vetted? How do we build a demand study? Um, how do we do a feasibility assessment? And then, you know, all, all the things that are necessary to get it in front of an investor, how do we do that at scale? Um, across a broad geographic area, which is our, which is sort of our mandate. So, uh, and 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 that's one of those areas where I think you know philanthropy can and, and and has been incredibly helpful in helping address challenges like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, <laughs> it's just sweat equity. Uh, it's just how much time, how many early mornings, how many late nights um, are you willing to spend? Once you've got a person in place who can do this, you know how hard are you willing to work at, at making it happen? And how many miles you're putting on your car, right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I hear you, and you're doing a, you're doing an incredible job tackling these challenges in Alabama, and I applaud you for it, uh, Alex. This has been a great conversation. 
looking forward to speaking with you again soon, getting the getting the update. Uh, but uh, until then, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Opportunity Alabama? Go check out our our wonderful website www.opportunityalabama.com or just just check out the Twitter. Uh, <laughs> we, we 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 tend to we we're not Rachel Riley, uh, but we're close. So um, so 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 come check us out. Uh, and yeah, uh, if if there's any way that that you want to get engaged with us, feel free to use the contact form on our website, uh, or or fr- feel free to to reach out to me or any of our staff directly. Good. Well, for our listeners out there, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And you'll find links to all of the resources that Alex and I discussed on today's show. I'll have links to public democracy, to the al.com article that Alex cited a few minutes ago, and of course, to opportunityalabama.com and their Twitter account. And now I may have to get a link up to Rachel Riley's Twitter account as well. So uh, all all that good stuff for you guys to check out, head on over to opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Alex, thanks. This has been incredible. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.